Good morning. Am I on? Can you hear me? I think you can. Um, I'm in a conundrum because I want to put my glasses on because I want to see you guys. But if I put my glasses on, then I can't read my notes. So, kind of in a little bit of a conundrum here. Anyway, let's pray. Father God, Lord, I just pray that you would speak through me right now. Lord, I pray that the words that I say, Lord, come only from you. Lord, that you... Lord, would just indwell each one of us right now, Lord, that you would just help us to remember what it is that you want us to know from this message. Lord, I thank you that you have given this message to me to deliver to this congregation, and I just thank you, Lord, for this wonderful church family. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. So I'm going to start with a quote from um, a philosopher by the name of Dallas Willard. And at one point, he was a Christian pastor and left the ministry to go be an instructor at a college so that he could um, then present the gospel to students. Um, He's known for his writings on Christian spiritual formation. And he says, the greatest challenge the church faces today is to be authentic disciples of Christ, of Jesus. And I don't know when he actually wrote this, But he passed away over 10 years ago in 2013. And so what has happened in the church in the last 10 years, um, I can't even imagine what he would say now. Because in 10 years, the church and culture and everything has changed so much and it's so drastically different. And the frightening thing is that people believe now, and even Christians believe now, that you can be a Christian today without being a a follower or an apprentice of Jesus. I find that mind-blowing. I don't see how anybody can can put those two together because that's not Jesus' mindset. That's not what he stood for, but it's a common American mindset. So last October, I went to the Be Bold conference. And I spoke a little bit about it and told you guys in one of the sharings about um, Elisa, Alicia Childers, who spoke on the progressive Christianity and the progressive gospel. And ever since then, I've just had this overwhelming sadness um, for where the direction of the church is headed. And I'm not speaking about our church. I'm speaking about just just the church in general, um, both in America and across the world. Um, I feel like us as true believers, we're not doing enough. Um, We're not standing up for what we believe is right. Um, But I believe that we can no longer ignore the call of Jesus in the Great Commission. And so I've done a little research, and I think you guys are going to find this absolutely astounding because I found it astounding. In 2021, um, Arizona Christian College did kind of a, a joint study with Barna Research And they found that more than two-thirds, 69% of American adults call themselves Christians to identify their faith. But it reflects very little deep spiritual commitment to foundational biblical teaching or understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower. So in other words, 69% of Americans believe that they're Christians and say that they're Christians, but the majority of them actually have no hooks to hang on. They don't um, study biblical teaching. They don't really understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus because they don't try to grow in their relationship with Jesus. Um, Many hold views that are in conflict with traditional teachings in the Bible, teachings about marriage, teachings about abortion, about relationships, all those kinds of things. Um, They believe that people are inherently good, that we're all good people. They reject the existence of objective truth that's rooted in scripture, and many of them do not acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. Um, They rely on their feelings, experiences, family, and friends more than the Bible for moral guidance. 58% contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being. 57% embrace the concept of karma, which is not a biblical teaching. 
and only 9% actually possess a biblical worldview, meaning that they believe that the Bible is true. And um, of those, of that 9%, um, only 6% believe in that biblical worldview and demonstrate a consistent understanding and application of biblical principles. So you have 69% of people in America that call themselves Christians, but only 6% are actually practicing their faith. That is a scary statistic. And when you look at how the church has changed so much and how it's digressing towards a progressive Christianity and deconstruction of the Christian faith, it's really heartbreaking. Um, For those of you who are not familiar with the terms of progressive Christianity and deconstruction, um, progressive Christianity is a rewriting of essential and important elements of biblical teaching to fit Western secular views. So they're changing the way that they believe the Bible is written to fit culture. And then deconstructionists question the faith and beliefs that they were taught. So if you were grown, you were raised in a Christian church, the deconstruction is people are challenging you to challenge your faith and questioning whether or not it's actually still true. So they're dissecting their faith again to fit into today's culture. Um, They often believe that the New Testament isn't even God's word. Um, The sad thing is, is I believe that a lot of churches are falling into this deconstructionist church and don't even realize it. Because when they're not teaching the whole Bible and they're not, um, they're changing the way that they believe that the Bible should be written or what the Bible says, they're changing, they're deconstructing the Bible. So I say all this because I firmly believe that we need to be authentic disciples of Jesus. So discipleship today is, I think, a little bit different now than it was in Jesus's time. Um, If I were to say I'm going to disciple a group of youth group girls, um, what we've done in the past is, you know, I take three or four girls, create a small group, we study a book in the Bible, we do a Bible study, and we sit around and we talk about it, and all that is great. And I'm not saying that that is a bad thing. But the problem is, is that it's more of a mentorship as opposed to discipleship or um, apprenticeship. It's a classroom-based model where we're sitting and we're studying, which is really, really important, but it's not life-based like Jesus did. Jesus taught life-based instead of teaching or classroom-based. The life-based model is what we find in the New Testament. It's a life of apprenticeship to Jesus. Um, Another quote by Dallas Willard, he says, there is no problem on earth which the solution is not apprenticeship to Jesus. And so if I want you guys to think about that for a minute, that there is no problem, there is no conflict, there is no issue in our lives that apprenticeship to Jesus can't help fix. We have to have a relationship with Jesus and we have to be an apprentice of Jesus as we walk through life if we want to be able to walk through life consistently with Jesus. So I want to challenge you to broaden your your definition of discipleship to include apprenticeship. So it's not a word that we use often when it comes to the Christian teaching. We use discipleship more, and discipleship is not a term that we use pretty much outside of the church. And so I think it's important to blend the two together because we need to be apprentices to Jesus. If you think about an electrician apprentice, so what do they do? They go to a class for several weeks um, to learn about electricity and and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. (laughs) But (laughs) before they can actually be licensed and go out and do things, they actually go along with a licensed electrician and they learn the tricks of the trade. And they learn how to do things. And they learn 
you know, you don't lick your finger and then stick it in a light socket, you know. They know, you know, you learn those things as you're going along. And I think that's really important that we look at our relationship with Jesus that way, that we need to be doing things with Jesus. We need to have hands-on experience. And I'm not downplaying the importance of mentorship or leadership training because that is really important. But we can't stop at just studying the Bible. That's just the first step. Because without biblical knowledge, you can't be an apprentice of Jesus. So we must move beyond studying the Bible into doing life as Jesus did. Um, Think about when you first became a believer in Jesus Christ. You started reading your Bible, um, and we, we learn a lot. And I believe that there's a high correlation at that very beginning stage between biblical knowledge and spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So at, as you become, when you're first a Christian, trying to figure out how to say this, when you first become a Christian, you get into your Bible and you read your Bible and you study your Bible and your biblical knowledge grows. But as you move along in your Christian faith, that Bible study isn't enough. And the correlation between biblical knowledge and spiritual maturity then actually changes. And it decreases because studying God's word isn't enough. And that's not what God wanted us to do. He just He didn't say, just study my word because we have to go out and do it. So you have to remember that your spiritual maturity isn't dependent just on what you read in the Bible and your study of the Bible. It's dependent on a lot of other things too. So turn, if you would, to James chapter 1, verse 22. Yes, I am going to have scripture. (laughs) And I think it's on the screen too. So James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like a man observing his face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues to do it, And continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. So to quote the famous Nike saying, just do it. So what we learn in God's word, James is saying here, we need to go out and do it. For example, as a baby Christian, you start, like kind of talked about this, you start reading the Bible for the first time, or with a new set of eyes if you've rededicated your life for the word the Lord. And you're excited about your what, what you're reading. And that's when you recognize, oh, maybe there's some areas in my life that I need to change. You know, maybe there's some things I need to give up. Maybe I need to make some changes in the friends that I hang out with. But then as time goes on, just sitting in the pew and learning or reading books about the Bible or reading the Bible just doesn't become enough. And we get complacent in our faith. So I've actively been pursuing Jesus now for about 30 years. And I used to get very easily frustrated, and I had a really, really short temper. And I could read books about temper and anger and that kind of stuff, and I can hear people and hear um, pastors preach great sermons about how Christ-like people exemplify the fruit of the Spirit and how they exemplify patience and kindness and goodness. Um, But that's not going to help me be patient and kind and good. I know that I need to be more patient and kind, and I want to be more patient and kind. But And I want to be the person that exemplifies the fruit of the Spirit in my life. But that's not enough. I have to actually do things to build that in my system, to build that in my life. And so what I did was I actually started, I found some scriptures that related to that 
and I started praying those scriptures over myself daily. And I still do it, not as often as I used to, but I did it daily for several years. Do I still struggle with frustration and a quick temper sometimes? You bet I do. I'm human. We all, you know, have those little areas of our lives that even though we make changes and we see growth, we still tend to fall back to those things um, when certain things happen. And so um, it's important for us to recognize areas in our lives where we need to make some changes, but we also need to recognize that there's areas in our lives um, that we can't do on our own, that we need assistance with. Another example is worry. Um, Matthew 6.34 says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Um, we know we don't need to worry, that God's got it handled. We know that we can hear a great sermon on worry and we can read great books on worrying um, and know that that's not what we're supposed to do. But how many of us still struggle with worry when things get scary? You know, we still worry. That's what we do. But if you increase your spiritual maturity and you start working on certain areas of your life, then you'll find that you're not worrying as much as you used to. So I found two different ways of developing and strengthening our spiritual maturity, and those are direct and indirect. So a direct way that you can make small changes in your life is um, through your willpower. So you form habits and patterns in your life that you can do on your own will, that you don't really need assistance. So for example, if you want to start reading your Bible daily, you make it a point to set your alarm 15 minutes early and you get up 15 minutes early and the first thing you do is you read a chapter in the Bible or you read a psalm or you read a proverb. Um, I had a pastor one time that challenged us to, for 12 months, read the Proverbs. So you start on January 1 and you read Proverbs 1. And then January 2, you read Proverbs 2. And of course, you all, because there's 31 Proverbs, but of course you get to February and you've got 28 days. So you've kind of got to mix in three more days there. You've got to figure out when you're going to read those three days. But and every month you would just start over. And that's a great way to get scripture into your mind. And it's a great way of forming a habit of getting into um, reading the Bible. But if you do that first and foremost, before you pick up your phone and look at social media, then you're going to find that that becomes a better habit, and then you're not in social media as much as you used to be. And I think for us, for people, I think that's a pretty simple thing that we can do, is to just get up 15 minutes early, set your alarm, and do it. If mornings, if you are not a morning person and can't do it, set your alarm to do it at 9 p.m. at night, or whatever time works for you. Just pick a time, set your alarm, and when your alarm goes off, that's what you do. Because a lot of people need reminders. I'm the type of person, I have to do it first thing in the morning because if I don't do any kind of Bible study first thing in the morning, it does not get done in my life. Um, I get too busy, I get too wrapped up in what's going on in my daily routine and by the time I finish my day, it's 9 p.m. and I'm exhausted and I'm thinking the last thing I want to do is study. So I don't do it. Um, so I can tell you that probably for the last, I think it's been probably close to 10 years since Dave and I have lived here, um, I could probably count maximum two hands where I've missed a day of actually reading my Bible. Um, because I've made that a priority in my life, and it's something that I really want to do. The second way you can develop and strengthen your spiritual maturity is through indirect ways. And these are deep changes that will transform you into being more like Jesus, where you begin to trust Jesus in both big and small things. And these are ways that are beyond the capacity of our willpower. It's not something that we can do because we want to do it, and it's not just reading books and studying scripture or listening to great sermons. Um, these are changes and growth that's going to occur within us through indirect channels like spiritual disciplines or um, experiences and reflection and reflecting on those experiences because those are the things 
that are going to make changes deep within us. Um, spiritual disciplines, um, there's so many of them. And they are how we do, I'm going to give you guys this definition. It, they're how we do what we can do in order for God to grow and mature us to become the kind of people who can eventually be able to do what we currently cannot do. I'll say that again. How we do what we can do in order for God to grow and mature us to become the kind of people who can eventually be able to do what we currently cannot do. So indirect changes in our spiritual maturity are a way of explaining like the fruit of the, the, fruit of the Spirit and abiding in Christ in our lives. We don't immediately get all of the fruit of the Spirit when we become Christians. Um, we can memorize Galatians 5, 22 and 23. We know what the fruit of the Spirit are, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But do all of us have all of those the minute we become believers? No, we don't. And we all struggle with certain ones, and everyone struggles with different ones. And so through spiritual disciplines, you'll be able to become more like Jesus because through those things, Jesus is going to then develop those fruits in the fruit inside you. So I'm going to go through a couple, five or six actual spiritual disciplines. Um, there's so many others, um, but I just kind of picked and choose, chose a couple of them because I think some of these are really important. They're all really important, but these are ones that really um, have helped me in a way. So studying the scriptures. Studying the scriptures is probably one of the most important things you can do. It's God's word. What better teacher do we have than God's word? We live in an instant gratification world, and we want to be mature Christians overnight, but that's not going to happen because studying requires time. If you think about back to that electrician, he's not going to go to school the first day of electrician school and read the book and know exactly what he's supposed to do. It just doesn't work that way. We study scriptures to be transformed, not just to accumulate information. And so you have to allow time to study God's word, to let it get into your head and into your heart so that you can be transformed by his word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so, righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so it's important that we know God's word so that we can be equipped to then do what Jesus calls us to do. Prayer is the second one I want to talk about. And Jesus gave us probably the best example of prayer in the Lord's Prayer. Um, it shows us a model of prayer that isn't anywhere else in the Bible. And verses 8 through 10, so Lord's Prayer is found in Matthew 6, chapter, or Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer shows us that Jesus is at the center. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So you're lifting up the name of the Lord and you're praising him and you're glorifying him. And if our lives are not characterized by a burning desire for his name to be glorified, how do we feel like we can ask for anything from him? If we're not glorifying God and praising God, do we really expect to God to answer our prayers? Is he just a genie in a bottle that we're going to rub and ask for things and he's going to give them to us? I don't think so. Verses 11 through 13 show us that it's, it's not a selfish prayer. It's not all about us. And we shouldn't be selfish in our prayers. We should be praying for other people and praying for our country and praying for our nation um, and the things that are going on around the world. There is so much going on. Um, you know, my little prayers, while they are important to me, you know, there's a lot more going on in the world than, you know, something that I need especially if it's not something that I really need, but something that I just want. And then the end of the Lord's Prayer circles back to God being at the center. For thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. So we start with God at the center. We go then out 
and praying for other people and then bringing God back to the center. And so keeping God at the center of our prayers is so important. And you should always start with praise and end with praise because that's what he's asked us to do. I think these first two, studying the scriptures and praying, are probably two of the most important things you can do on your own. Um, it's really good to do them with friends and with other people as well, but I think those are the two most important things that if you were going to do something at home on a daily basis, those are the two that I would pick. Um, fasting is another great spiritual discipline. I am so bad at fasting. That is not my jam. I struggle with it. I make excuses. Um, I am terrible when it comes to fasting. So, um, do I want to fast? I do. I have read books on fasting. I have listened to sermons on fasting. I have joined groups. Like when we did the, what was it, a 21-day fast here, 10-day fast here a couple years ago. And I tried. And I, and I always excuse it with, I work in a job that I have to have my brain, and if I don't have food, I don't have brain. So <laughs> um, what I've realized is fasting doesn't have to be just food. It can be something else. So when you make a decision to fast, whether it be food or something else, I think the best thing to do is to think about what in your life takes up the most time? What in your life have you put as an idol above God? Is it your phone and social media? Is it your job? Granted, a lot of us can't quit our jobs because we want to fast. Um, but maybe it's um, taking a step back and not working as much or bringing your work home with you. Um, Perhaps it's video games. Perhaps it's um, your family. So whatever it is that you spend the most time thinking about and doing, maybe that's what you should be fasting from. So if our lives... How do I say this? When you fast... Um, you open your heart to God for him to work on the things that you maybe are selfish about. You come to the end of yourself and you find yourself in a place where you just need God and you need him more. And honestly, that's where I want to be. I want to be in a place where God is at the center of everything that I do, and I, I just, I want him more, and I want him involved in every single aspect of my life and in everything that I do. And I need to, in my own life, figure out where it is that I push him off to the side, because I need to bring him back and make him center. Um, when you're fasting, you seek, you're seeking him more to be in his presence. So in, in a fast with food, you know, you're seeking God at those times that you're hungry and you're, and you're praying and you're asking him to just remove that and you're just indwelling yourself in his, in his word and in prayer so that you can draw closer to him to get rid of that hunger feeling. Um, you seek the scriptures more when you're fasting because that's what you're turning to instead of whatever it was that you turned to before. And I think then you're at a point and you're at a place in your spiritual walk where you can actually hear from him more. So fasting combined with prayer will allow you to work um, and allowing will allow God to work in you to change the things in your life that need to be changed and the things that you've been searching for. And so these are the deep spiritual connections that we don't get from, from willpower and direct changes. It takes time. Um, another example is simplicity. Um, simplicity is a really good one, especially if you're um, somebody that likes material possessions. Um, simplicity brings about gratefulness in your heart. 
when I, um, I think I've been to Haiti six different times doing mission work. And every time I go, it just amazes me how joyful and grateful the Haitian people are. They literally have nothing. So in the United States, if you're in need, you can find organizations that will give you assistance in any area, whether it be um, financially or um, food or gasoline or housing or whatever it is. In Haiti, they don't have anything like that. So if they're hungry, they're hungry, and they go to bed hungry. The typical Haitian gets like a cup of rice and beans total per day to eat. That's about all they eat. And it always amazed me how grateful these people were and how much they loved the Lord. And it's because their lives were so simple and they didn't have all of the distractions that we have in the States. And so they had to rely on Jesus. Simplicity allows us to enjoy our things and the possessions that we have without being destroyed by them. So it's the middle, it's the middle ground between obsessive accumulation of material things and self-imposed poverty as a way to purify your soul. So simplicity allows us to live decent lives and a life devoted to Jesus without being obsessed with material things. Simplicity is freedom because you're not attached to those things. Um, we do questions in youth group. And one of the questions we've asked in the past is, if your house was burning down and your family and your animals were all safe, what one thing would you grab? If you could grab one thing out of your house, what would you grab? You know, and we get varying answers from all sorts of people. And I always think to myself, I would grab my Bible. That's the one thing I would grab because I have all my notes and everything. I, you know, pictures, you can find those on Facebook anywhere um, or the internet or family or something like that. But it's my Bible that I would grab. And honestly, if I didn't grab it, it really wouldn't be the end of the world because I can go pick up another one um, because I'm not attached to the things in my life. Dave and I, let's see, we've been married 25 years this year. And we have never bought a new couch. All of our couches have always been hand-me-downs from somebody. I don't think we've bought a kitchen table. Um, we are still using pots and pans that I had when I moved out of my parents' house. My mom bought me a set of pans, and uh, we're still using those. The dishes we have, we bought brand new dishes when we moved to Seaside, so that was 25 years ago. We're still using those dishes. We did have to finally get new silverware. But material things are not important to us because we don't want to be attached to those things. If someone were to come to our house and um, spill grape juice on my couch, it's a couch. I don't really care. <laughs> you know? And that's the kind of simplicity that I think Jesus wants us to have, that we're not attached to those material things. Um, and so some scriptures, a scripture you guys could look up is Philippians 4.12. Um, in fact, I'll just read it for you. Um, Paul says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And so I just challenge you guys, if you're attached to things in your life, simplify your life. <clears throat> Submission is the next one I want to talk about. Um, to submit means to give up the burden to enforce your own will towards any authority left by God in your life. So Jesus submitted everything to God. Um, he is our model of submission. So he, he submitted his life for us. And submission to God has to be without limits. We can't hold anything back. And so... I think the one thing that probably hinders submission the most is a lack of humility. 
or pridefulness in our own lives. We think that we can do better than God, um, or we're not willing to, we're willing to give him this part of our life, but, you know, I'm going to hold this back because I'm not ready to give this up. That's not what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to give it all to him, to turn it all over to him and submit it all to him because we can't practice submission to others if we're not willing to submit everything to God. And so some scriptures here. I'm going to look these up. Um, Acts 4.19. Acts 4.19 says, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so here they're saying, we need to speak about Jesus because that's what he wants us to do. In Acts 5.29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said to them, we ought to obey God rather than men. And so when you're faced in a situation and someone asks you to do something that you know is against what God wants you to do, who are you going to submit to? The person that asked you that's standing in front of you, or are you going to submit to God? And so we have to be willing to completely submit to God in all areas of our life. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, For which, whoops, wrong one, Philippians 2 Oh, I screwed. Three and four. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then lastly, James chapter four, verse seven says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so I challenge you that if there's anything in your life that you haven't been willing to submit to Jesus, um, try and recognize those areas and make it a point to do that. The last spiritual discipline I'm going to talk about is Sabbath. And I think a couple of years ago, um, I got to speak to you guys again, and I talked about Sabbath rest and how important Sabbath rest is. Um, we have to choose to observe a Sabbath day. Um, it was important to Jesus and it needs to be important to us to take a day where we rest, where we take a day where we don't work and we don't do anything. Uh, Dave and I used to hold youth group on Sunday nights for high school group because it really is the only night that high school students seem to have available unless they've actually you know, procrastinated and not done any homework and need to do homework on Sunday nights. Um, but we realized that we didn't have a weekend when we did that, and we also weren't observing the Sabbath because Sundays were busy days for us because we would get home from church and we would have to eat lunch and then we'd have to get ready and come back to go to youth group. So we changed youth group to Tuesday night. And while it's not ideal and we lose a lot of students during different sports, we've chosen to make Sunday a day of rest for us. We don't um, clean the house. And my house can be a mess because of working all week and forgetting to do anything. Um, we would, may need to go do something, um, but we try and choose to do absolutely nothing on Sundays except church because that is a day that we're trying to devote to the Lord. Um, it's a day of rest for us, and I challenge you to find a day. It doesn't have to be on Sundays, but I challenge you to find a day where you can choose a day to rest and devote to the, to the Lord. Um, three scriptures here, Leviticus 23.3, Genesis 2.2, and then Hebrews 4.9 are all three great scriptures on Sabbath. <coughs> and there's so many more different spiritual disciplines. Second one is Genesis 2.2. First one, Leviticus 23.3. Second one, Genesis 2-2, and the last one was Hebrews 4-9. So there's so many other spiritual dis disciplines like 
solitude and tithing and worship, um, I would encourage you guys to, to research. And if there's areas of your life where you need to make some changes, um, seek out those opportunities to change because that's going to help you to grow in your spiritual maturity. So another indirect way of growing in your spiritual formation is through experiences. Um, experiences alone don't necessarily grow your faith. For example, suffering. Um, there's many reasons that people may suffer. It could be health issues. It could be consequences for our actions because of disobedience to the Lord. It could be um, that we're suffering because God wants us to grow personally in a certain area of our life. And it could be um, for future discipleship opportunities that maybe you went through something <coughs> Sorry, um, that God's going to use that so that somewhere down the road, you can help someone else who is maybe experiencing that same thing. And there's also times maybe where we suffer where we don't even know why. But the suffering itself doesn't grow your faith. It's the reflection on what you went through that's going to help to grow your faith. Because without reflection, you're not going to be able to recognize where you've grown, what you've learned, or what changes or decisions you need to make in your own life to move forward. Journaling is a great tool for reflection. Um, it helps you to really get like your ideas and your thoughts and your feelings down on paper. <coughs> I'm dying at the moment. Um, So journaling is really good. Um, I highly recommend it, even when you're not suffering or even when you're not going through something bad. Journaling helps you to really um, see your progress as a believer. I have journals from 20 years ago that occasionally I will pull out and I will read through and I just think, wow, um, I remember when that happened or wow, um, look at how much... I've seen this person grow in their faith because I wrote about them in my journal and then I look at them now and it's, it's just amazing. Um, other ways that we can reflect on our suffering is possibly through counseling. And it doesn't have to be formal counseling in some areas um, of suffering. Maybe you do need formal counseling, but it could be as simple as um, friends meeting together and having a confidant and talking to somebody about what you're going through. For example, when um, <coughs> a lot of you know that I've been married before, and when Dave and I first, I don't even want to say we were dating, we were like best friends for two, two and a half years, and when we kind of got to the point where we realized we had feelings for each other and we were starting to think about um, the future and where to go from here, um, we had made plans on a Sunday afternoon um, after church, and I ran home. We were going to go out to lunch or something, but I ran home real quick because I had to go let the dogs out, and I had to do a couple things. And I was home for about 20 minutes, and I was getting ready to leave, and I hit the button on the garage door to have the garage door lift up. And as the garage door lifted up, there was feet there, like at the edge of the garage door. And, and as the garage door lifted, it was my ex-husband. And um, to kind of give you a backstory, um, we were supposed to, we were married for about two or three years. We were supposed to go to my parents' house for, for Thanksgiving, and then one of my best friends was getting married the following weekend, and so we had made plans to go for the full week so that we could be there for the wedding. And just before... Thanksgiving, his best friend, Bill, was killed in a car accident in Missouri. And so he ended up going to Missouri, and I ended up going to California. Well, I got back from California, and I got home. My cousin had picked me up at the airport and had brought me home. And when I got home, he had moved out of the house. And so we never really had 
a discussion. And there was probably three years between when that happened and when his feet showed up at my garage door. And we had never really talked. Um, we did not have an amicable divorce. Um, I fought him tooth and nail for pretty much everything um, because I wanted to settle on one thing. And um, it was just, we just never had a conversation. It got to a point where we only spoke through attorneys. And so when he was standing there, um, my first thought was, was anger um, at what is he doing standing here. And we actually had the best conversation, I think, of our entire relationship. Um, he came in the house, and we sat, and we talked, and he apologized, and we, um, we were able to just make that, um, I don't want to say connection, but we were able to just get over whatever that conflict was between us. And I remember, like, that very next day, calling my friend Chris, who I had, she was kind of like a mentor to me, and I told her, I sat down with her, and I shared with her what happened, and I said, why is God doing this to me? You know, I, I don't want him in my life. I don't want to be around him. And she said, maybe this is your opportunity for closure, and that this needed to happen so that you could forgive him have that closure and move on in your relationship with Dave because otherwise that could have been some underlying issue that could have then caused conflict with Dave. And it was like, oh, yeah, you know, and, and it totally made sense at that point, but I needed her wisdom as somebody that I trusted as a sister in Christ to help me see what was going on and what was happening. So it doesn't necessarily have to be formal counseling, but sometimes just the wisdom of a mature Christian, somebody that you trust and believe and respect to help you through that. And so why do I say all this? Um, because we need to do what Jesus did. Everything that we do, studying the scriptures, the habits we're forming, um, the spiritual disciplines that we're practicing, all of this is in vain if we're not doing what Jesus did to grow as an apprentice of Jesus. An apprentice is a side is side by side, day in and day out with the person that they're learning from. And that's how our lives need to be, side by side with Jesus, learning from him day by day. That's what the 12 apostles did. They stood with him for three years, day by day, every single day they were with him, walking with him, doing what Jesus did. And the feet of Jesus belong to those who are willing to be moved by God. If you look back throughout the Bible, you have Abraham, who was instructed to leave his home country and move, and he didn't even know where he was going, but he went. You have Jonah, who was told to go preach to the Ninevites a message of repentance. They were a hostile nation. We all know how that ended. Ruth leaves her own family to be with Naomi, her mother-in-law, and to move back to Naomi's country to be with her and serve her. And then Jesus called 12 ordinary people that if we were to look at them today, we would look at these people and think, why would he choose them? Why wouldn't he choose people who were learned, who, you know, who knew the scriptures, who, who were... Um, pillars in society, but he chose ordinary people like us to walk with him for three years. In each instance, God was looking for those who were willing to set aside their personal comforts and interests to follow him. He wants us to do the same thing. He wants us to be willing to set aside our personal comforts and the things that we want to do to follow him. And we need to do instead of just study, instead of just practicing these things. So um, one of the things that um, a church that I was involved with, Dave and I were involved with, 
um, when we first moved back to Seattle in, I think it was 2008, the church had a, a small group on Sunday nights, and if anybody was invited, and we learned how to basically share the gospel. And we didn't, um, it wasn't like a memory thing, but it was more for the, like, the first three or four weeks, we practiced sharing our, our testimony and talking with each other about the things that God was doing in our life. And then they sent us out into different neighborhoods. So there was probably about 10 of us. And they sent us out in groups of like three or four where we went out and literally knocked on doors and just introduced ourselves, invited them to church and prayed with them, asked them if there was anything that we could pray for. And we also just shared the gospel with them. And it was such a fulfilling ministry to me. And of course, the people who were more advanced in doing it were the ones that spoke first. But eventually I got to the point where I was brave enough to actually do it. And, you know, did we get a lot of people that came to church as a result of it? I don't think so. Um, did we lead people to Christ? Yeah, occasionally there was that person. But you know what? We planted seeds. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to plant seeds. And so I just, I want to challenge you guys um, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. One last quote from Dallas Willard. He says, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it. Or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. So how are you guys practicing Jesus? How are you guys being an apprentice to Jesus? I want to be the hands of feet in Jesus in a dying world. What about you guys? So let's pray. Oh, Father, Lord, I just thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you are our teacher. You're our guide, and you're our apprentice. And I pray, Lord, that you would just guide and direct us in the areas, Lord, where we need to make changes. Guide and direct us, Lord, in a way that we can draw closer to you and practice Jesus, being with you, allowing you to guide us, and let us be just an example for you in everything that we do. Thank you, Lord, for this time, and I pray, Lord, that you would just really impress on our hearts where it is that we need to make changes. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. So if you guys want to come, just pray. What is God doing? Where is he 